Welcome to the Science of Beers podcast with me, Mick Mickey. Talking science and drinking beers with researchers down at the pub. We cover a new topic each episode, so join us with a brew and let's cheers to science. On what could be the last Science and Beers podcast episode of the wonderful year that is 2020, we have Dr. Ivan Seknan. So this is the first time we've actually done a, a live podcast recording with an audience at Studenterhus Unze. And I sat down with Ivan and we had a really good chat. Um, this podcast is going to be divided up into two parts. Because Ivan is such a character, such a busy guy. He's uh, he's involved in many different different projects, and he has very many different ideas and collaborations. The first thirty minutes of this podcast will be a discussion with Ivan about his PhD. Ivan's also a medical doctor, but he did a he did a PhD during his medical training as well, and he discovered a, a new brain disease that was first hypothesized a hundred years ago. So it's called Network Diachesis. On the second half, quite appropriately, we're going to be talking about a new app for mass testing COVID. So not just the methods behind the testing for COVID, but an artificial intelligence that Ivan and some of his colleagues created that would, if used, could really make the COVID testing process very fast and very efficient, effective. Um, it's made, but it's not rolled out yet. He's trying to get support for it. So if you want to hear about that, flick on to about 31 minutes in, 32 minutes in maybe, and, and listen to that. Otherwise, just listen to the whole thing. Both the network diachesis and the the AI for the, the mass COVID testing are part of the synaptic science solutions so I'll put a link for synaptic science solutions in the text below so you can have a little look at that so thank you very much for listening to the podcast if you want to support the podcast please go to patreon.com forward slash the science and beers podcast thanks hello Hello. Thank you very much for coming to the Science and Beers. Uh, this is going to be a, a live podcast recording. We are on YouTube. Hello, YouTube. We are recording it for the podcast series, and thank you very much for, for joining us. So, it's Friday. Let's start off with the skull. Skull. Skull, Ivan. So... Ivan, we met in a trampoline park. Yeah. <laughs> it was a few years ago, there was a concert in a trampoline park, and, and we got chatting. Um, and then I was calling you up a couple of months ago. I, Ivan, on, on the, the phone, just in, in passing, he starts telling me these stories about Nobel Prize winners from 100 years ago, about uh, methods used in the Second World War to cure venereal disease... <laughs> about like, a, who is this guy? About an AI to to track COVID nineteen. Uh, okay, that, this is too much. This is too much. Let's let's sit down. Let's get a beer and, and, and talk this talk about this thoroughly. Uh, so, first of all, a, a bit about yourself, Ivan. Uh, well, uh, what do you want to know? Tell me about the PhD. The PhD? Yeah. Well, it was uh, um, I had uh, studied medicine for three years. And I was curious about science because I heard, I heard it was uh, hard and you had to have stamina and you had to be creative. So I thought that sounds really fun. Um, and then so I took a break in my medicine study and um, I did a, a science year. And during that science year, I, uh, I started developing a method. So when my, candid, my master started the last three years, uh, I continued uh, developing that method, and uh, it turned out that I could uh, make my own PhD protocol. 
So I made my own PhD protocol and I almost forced my main advisor to be my main advisor because nobody wanted to be my main advisor because I was just, you know, going on, going on my own path, sort of. So, so you're, you're in the middle of studying medicine and you didn't think that was scientific enough? Uh, <laughs> uh, you want the honest it, answer or the it, diplomatic it, 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 answer? It sounds that way to me. Of course the honest answer. Yeah. Well, of course. Um, yeah, I wanted more science, for sure. And I, uh, you know, I was looking in the medicine books and I was, uh, you know, when you look at the brain, you have all these neurons, um, but uh, it does not say very much about how they connect. So it's like, it's like looking at um, a web that is made by spiders, but no one actually tells you how the web work. It only tells you how separate parts work. So I was starting to get curious about, does that brain actually work uh, as a collective unit in this neural network? Or is it correct that we don't, it doesn't exist? Because that's the truth today. The truth today in the, in the medicine books that we all read is that, uh, you know, the brain works in like, like in silos. It doesn't work, uh, it doesn't work as one collectively biological mass. Well, yeah, you, you see these images of the brain and you have it divided into sections. You have the hippocampus, for yeah, example. Yeah, exactly. So, for example, you know, if you have a, yeah, you have hippocampus, you have amygdala, you know, you know that if you have a lot of anxiety, it is associated with a, a more uh, activity in amygdala and these things. But how the whole brain works as one organ, uh, it doesn't say very much about, and especially also the, the cerebellum, the little brain. You know, you have cerebrum, which is the, the higher brain, and then you have cerebellum, which is the little brain. So, for example, in dementia and very many brain diseases, it does not talk about the little brain. It's like it doesn't exist. Of course, in science it does. It, it's done a lot of science on it, but when it comes to treatment in the hospitals, it doesn't say very much about it. So, so this was a, a sparkle of curiosity, um, and um, and then I went to science dating. So, 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 tell me about the, the curiosity there. You're thinking, okay, is there is nobody writing about the brain as a whole? People are trying yeah. to figure out. Yeah. But you know, the medicine books, you know, the what is the truth? The, what is written in them is often lagging in maybe 10 or 20 years between what we are producing of science today. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's the one reason why when I was reading in it, it didn't say anything about how the whole brain works as a biological mass. But the other reason is also that even though there are many people doing science on it, in order to actually make it a scientific truth, it's not enough that you produce a few studies you have to produce a big amount of studies. Mm -hmm. And that we have not done so much of today. What happened next? Well, then I went to uh, science dating, where you meet all the uh, doctors from the hospital, different departments. Like, uh, like speed, speed dating yeah. with doctors? So, wow. of course, so I went to... Uh, Has anybody been at a speed dating with doctors before? <laughs> no. Or sci and scientists. Scientists, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, and then I looked at the program, and then I saw... It said the partner of nuclear medicine. And then sort of like, I forgot my interest of the brain. I was thinking, nuclear medicine? What, what is that? <laughs> that sounds cool. So then my curiosity actually made me go there first. And there were some beautiful people there. Um, and then they told me about nuclear medicine. And it was, it was even more fascinating than what I thought it was. So then I learned about that. Oh, you mean you mean nuclear medicine? Are you talking about uh, the, the treatment of, of cancer or? New, I'm talking about nuclear medicine. T t what, nuclear. L like what? What do you associate nuclear with? Bombs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. which comes from radioactivity, uh -huh. right? So it's actually it's medicine made out of radioactivity. So at Odense University Hospital, they have uh, two cyclotrons which produce radioactivity every morning. And then um, you inject it into the blood veins of the patient, the reactivity, and then you label, you can label it with whatever um, um, chemical you want, sugar or protein or, and then, so you, then you take image of the patient. 
So you you can actually see how the biology is based on that you inject mm-hmm. reactivity. So that's nuclear medicine, in short. Yeah. Okay. So so you were interested in that, and then you came back to the brain. Well, the thing was that I went to the neuro- department of neurology, neurosurgery, but they didn't have a project that was exciting. Because, you know, if you want to look at the whole brain, you cannot look in small petri dishes. That's impossible. Because there you have maybe brain cells. If you look at mice, well, you're looking at the brain of a mice, a mouse or a rat. And I want to look at the human and the whole brain. So in that sense, it made sense to actually uh, study nuclear medicine. Because it's, it, it imaged the whole brain. It's mm-hmm. a biological f- a footprint of the brain. Mm-hmm. And did, did you set up with the research question? Uh, yeah. Which was? How does uh, diaschesis affect patients with brain tumor? Yeah. So I know that the discovery is to do with that. So I think we need an introduction to, to diaschesis. Yeah. Diaschesis. Can you, can you give us an introduction to, to that? Yeah. Well, it means it's, uh, it means it's, on Greek, it's a Greek name. Yeah. And in English, it means uh, shock throughout. And it was discovered in the 1914 by a, a very famous uh, uh, neuropathologist from Monaco. So diaschesis means that he investigated and he found that if you have a disorder in your brain in one location, that will actually do that the ne- neuron will also be damaged in a different location. Mm-hmm. That's diaschesis, shock throughout. It's just like a shock throughout the whole neuron. So it's like if you have, a, if you know, if you take, if you call me from Ireland, and I'm here in Denmark, and you have old-fashioned phone, then if you know, if you get the damage in Ireland, then of course you will lose the signal in Ireland, right? Yeah. But I will also lose the signal. Yes. I cannot hear what you say if yes. it was an old-fashioned phone. But that's diaschesis. It just means that the whole neuron is damaged. So, so it, yeah. If he was able to figure that out, then that, that was evidence that, yeah, the, the connection between different parts of the brain is, uh, there, there is a connection between air, different yeah. parts of the brain, yeah. So if I get a hidden head over here on the right side of my head, um, it will not only damage the cells close to the impact, it will damage the cells on the left side of my brain. Yes, in theory. In theory. Yeah, that was the theory of diaschesis. The reason I say theory is because, you know, he only created a hypothesis based on few evidence. But still, today, we don't have enough evidence to say that it always happened, or that it sometimes happened. We actually have so few evidence on this that we have no idea, because we have not investigated it. We have not tested his hypothesis base. You know, we haven't tested mm-hmm. it enough. So that's why I, you know, because and the reason why I looked at it was because I looked at the images of these brain tumor patients and you know brain tumor we have not uh, managed to uh, prolong the living time for 80 years you know uh, uh, of the most glioblastoma the most severe type and then I was thinking okay if we have not managed to actually do something in 80 years maybe we're doing something wrong like like completely wrong and so that's why when I looked at the images I could see that the place where the tumor was, then I could also see with my eyes that, okay, the, the brain actually has a very different met, uh, metabolic pattern far away. I can really see, okay, if the tumor is here, I can look that the whole brain here has decreased activity. Mm-hmm. I can also see it in the little brain. And, and then, of course, started digging back in, in, uh, on PubMed. Then I found diaschesis. So, of course, this is also the beauty of science, that you see something, you get the theory, and then either you create the method yourself, or you go back in history, and you see what other people have done. And then maybe they have done something you haven't thought of, but that connects your observation with an even better theory. So, so you're inspired by a theory that came out 100 years ago? Well, the, I was inspired by my visual sight. Mm-hmm. And then I saw that, oh these great neuropathologists have actually, they actually produce science about it, you know. So that made, made me, that confirms that the, the path you're on, it's maybe something there. You were telling me about, about two competing Nobel Prize winners from yeah. 100 years ago. So, so is, is one of them theorized diaschesis? 
Uh, no. No, okay. <laughs> I actually just discovered this at the end of my PhD thesis. Yeah. But then it made, very, it made very much sense. So after then I always talk about it. Uh, like I always knew it, but I haven't. Tell me about it again. The point is that in 1906 they gave the Nobel uh, Prize in Medicine and Physiology to two people. And then you can show the image. Okay. <laughs> and of course, here's the image of three people. And, and so one of them, so you can of course guess that it's only two of them that get the prize. One of them um, was, who was competing was Camillo Golgi. Um, he's known for uh, the reticular theory, which states that uh, the whole brain functions in one uh, network. Reticular means network in Latin. And so he stated that, and he stated that from looking in the microscope in his lab, okay? Then you have the Cajal, uh, um, which was from Spain, and he said that, no, it's completely wrong. He said that the brain only works in independent networks. So it doesn't work in a biological unit. They're, they're not biological connected whatsoever. And then you have the Fritjof Nansen, which is a Norwegian. I'm very proud that he's Norwegian. Yeah. And he said that, well, I have, think I have discovered something that connects the neurons, but it's not, a, it's not the anatomical unit. It's just a seat where I can see some black dots. And that's later known as the synapse. And of course, only two of these got the Nobel Prize. And it was, uh, it was not my fellow Norwegian, Nansen, mm -hmm. but it was Kajal and Golgi. Mm -hmm. And they were so angry on one another that they had to give the Nobel Prize to, on two different days. Because they were, uh, they could, I mean, they were really, uh, they could be violent. They wanted to kill each other. The brains they connected. No, it's yeah. not. No, yes, yeah. it is. Okay. Well, that, that sounds pretty aggressive now. Did, did your work support either theory that the brain is... is well, our work supported the theory of actually all these three. Uh -huh. You know, because of course we do know, because the thing is that in 1906, the, the problem or the thing was that Golgi, he was political uh, abandoned. Like he was put out in the cold. So people said to him, you know, even though he won the Nobel Prize, in general, people said, well, he, he, doesn't, he, he has misunderstood something vital. Huh. They said that, they said, Golgi is saying that all the neurons are actually anatomically connected, right? But Golgi didn't say that. I read his Nobel speech from Stockholm, and, and he didn't say that. But the political environment or scientific said that he's wrong. So ever since, we have much, we are almost... We have followed Kayal's theory very much. Uh -huh. So by evidence, by science, we do know, like you said, that yes, there are, of course, stronger connections between some parts or maybe only connections be some, some, between some parts. There are some parts of the brain that produce some things that is associated with anxiety or memory or, you know. So, so we have explored his theory very much. And of course... And so his theory is, is where the, the medicine textbooks are, are, are yes, based. Yes, it's based on. Yeah. And, there you, and, and then you can see, okay, so you have the science saying... Um, the thing is that, you know, the medicines we take to get today, for example, you know, working on serotonin levels or dopamine or these things, they are, of course, from, based on the neural doctrine, that if something happens to the serotonin receptors... Well, you have to do something in that area, and then the brain will be better, right? So we, that's also why, you know, very much of how we perceive treating the brain is based on the neural doctrine. And then secondly, you also have MR images and CT, which is what you do today, normally. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, MR image is also just a structural image of the brain. It, it shows... Uh, uh, you know how big your frontal lobes are and the gyruses and these things so then if you have a something happen here uh, you can also sort of try to theorize where that connection will go and where it will damage so in general we have done a lot of science and also science and treatment based on neural doctrine but the other uh, Nobel Prize the, the Tickler theory we have not done so much science on mm -hmm. 
Um, and of course, today we have a very big uh, challenge in brain science and in treatment of the brain. Uh, you know, there are very many diseases we don't know what is causing them. Schizophrenia or dementia. There is no, you know, two, two, two lines under the answer. And if it was, I, was, I would not be so enthusiastic about my own science. <clears throat> but, yeah, you know, because we don't have the answer to very many of the brain diseases, the most likely answer to that is there's something you don't understand. Your own PhD then, yeah. Ivan, what, uh, what discoveries did came out of it? it was, I guess it, was, yeah. it took three years to... Yeah, to, to work on the PhD. Well, it took uh, six years. Six years. Okay. I started at, in medicine study, and then I, so I did, you know, and then I fin- used one and a half year to finish it. Yeah. After a study, and well, we published. Um, we showed. We published that the, the method I made by uh, uh, programming a neural software using the correct statistical method. Uh, we showed that in brain tumor patients, uh, when you measured the whole brain as one biological unit, we could predict if the patient would live uh, short or long, so above or below a year, by looking at the whole brain and not only the tumor. And then we used the same method uh, applied in dementia patients uh, where we also could uh, show that uh, uh, the more the whole brain had a lower metabolism of sugar, and all the neurons use sugar, uh, the higher was the likelihood of having the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. You know, of these dementia patients we yeah. had, uh, some of them had uh, Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. and some of them had a diagnosis of uh, mild cognitive impairment. Mm-hmm. So, and then some were healthy controls. And then when we used the method, we could see that the healthy controls had a, had a metabolism that uh, was normal, defined by some, some uh, parameters, and that uh, Alzheimer and mycolytic impairment had a metabolism that was lower mm-hmm. in the whole brain. Is that Alzheimer's? Is, is Alzheimer's a lower metabolism in the brain? It could be. Because we don't know what it is at we the don't. moment, do we? No. Do we know what dementia is? Uh, well, I maybe get hanged if I say this, but I would say no. You know, if we knew what dementia was, why don't we have a treatment? Yeah. Or why don't we, you know, are close to a treatment? And of course, as far as I understood, this can be wrong, but we have not uh, uh, given a new... It's not been published a new medicine on Alzheimer's for the last 10 years or something. And, and you know, so if you ask me personally, because, again, I'm just an expert on technology of software and diaskesis, mm-hmm. personally, uh, of course we don't have an answer to dementia. And this also goes to, you know, so one part of the thesis was about looking at the brain disease that uh, spreads in the whole brain, but the other part of the, the PhD was to create a, tech, a method that is technologically good enough. Because there are so many different softwares that is produced commercially by companies um, and there are so many different methods, but in general, very many of these softwares that these companies sell, um, they have these black boxes of statistical working. So they're producing numbers, but when you really look at it, it does not connect back to the biological source. Well, so it creates some biases. You're going to have to explain to me exactly how you go, how, how do you use software and computer programming to look at the brain? Well, it's like, so you, like we told, it's the PET images that I looked at. So it means that you... In- is, is that with the nuclear, yeah. the nuclear medicine? Okay. Everybody so you, remembers this? Yeah. You inject reactivity into the blood veins. Yeah. Okay. Then the patient is resting for about 45 minutes yeah. after injection so that all the reactivity can go out in the body. And then you put him in the scanner. And then when he's lying there with his head, the reactivity, of course, is beaming out in many different directions. And then you have cameras 360 degrees around mm-hmm. that uh, they catch these reactivity uh, rays and then they go to the computer and then the software looks at the coordinates and then the coordinates create the image. Mm-hmm. And then you can 
put onto that image of raw coordinates, you can put the software on. So if you have a brain tumor, the tumor will eat much more sugar. And the sugar is connected to radi radioactivity that we have injected. So it means that if you look at the image, you're, the place where we have the tumor we have, will have light much more up, like a sun. Mm -hmm. Then other parts of the brain will look like a, a cloudy day. So it started with being interested in the brain, mm -hmm. but I ended up with actually spending all my time in just trying to create this method in the software, to use the correct statistics and all these things that I had no clue about. So I had to learn everything from the beginning. And that was ex really fun and really interesting. That, that's good to hear, you know? It was really difficult, but it was fun. Yeah, know? it was really fun. I you know, I think if it's, if it's easy, it's not so, at least for me, I find it more boring. But when it's complex, and, it's, and of course, this is the beauty of science, of course, you know that, you know that, okay, it's hard, it's stimulating for myself, but you can also smell that, okay, if there is something to this, you can really help many other people as well. So it's both an individual benefit, but also a, a, a common benefit. So tell, me about the, tell us about the, the development of the method. Because because yeah. we're, we're 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 talking about the the origin of, of the company Synaptic. Yeah. So so explain how how the method works into you uh, along with some collaborators. Yeah. Starting the starting the the, the company. Well, uh, so I worked with the method, I developed it, and then I uh, uh, we made a good very nice publication. Then I went to a conference in Vancouver, Canada. I was standing in the line. It was a brain conference. You know, and then it's like this guy in front of me and like, should I talk to him? Okay, I talked to him. And then I asked, so where are you from? And he's like, well, I'm from Copenhagen. And he's like, where are you from? <laughs> well, I'm from Woodense. <laughs> and then what, you work, what are you working with? Uh, I'm working with um, looking at the whole brain, metabolism. What are you working with? Well, I'm working with the same. <laughs> and, you know, so for the, so the rest, I mean, he was almost the only person I talked to on that conference. We, because I wanted to learn about his method and he asked me questions about mine and he made a method looking at the metabolism with sugar, with nuclear medicine with patients with coma and if you could predict by creating a quantitative method the degree of consciousness by using coma scales, you know, in order to see how awake the person was Okay, wow, so, so if you're like way gone in a deep coma, you have low metabolism in the brain, I guess. He was looking at this. And he had made some publications stating that, yes, there was a theory about this. He had found some few evidence. And this was at the time that Michael Schumacher had this accident in the Alps. Yeah, and he was Remember? in a coma. Yeah. yeah, so he told me that, you know, all these people would call him, these journalists, and said, well, you have this method, right? But of course, it's science. And he only looked at a few people. So he also made some great publications. But again, in in few people, and his, his method was beautiful. So when I came back here, I additionally thought that, hmm, this is really interesting. So I, I, um, I, uh, I got a hold of a new software that was an upgrade of the old software, where I could program myself much easier, like drag and drop and these things. So then I tried to mix his method with mine and was playing around with the, with the images of the brain tumor patients, but also with Alzheimer. So I merged them, and I said, I want to make a method that detects diaschesis across the primary brain disease. You know, just like, you, let's say if you had ID, you wanted to create a method to measure blood pressure. That's also, you know, you can measure blood pressure regardless of the primary brain disease. Well, why couldn't you do that with the brain? Mm -hmm. And then playing around, then suddenly one day I'm like, shit, shit, this really, I really think this works. <laughs> and then like, nobody knows about it, and it's new. I wonder if I can, if, if I can take a patent on it. <laughs> it, was, it was really cool, uh, like, especially, you know, it was really cool. Well, whenever you re remove a tumor, yeah. do you see a difference in, in the rest of the brain? Does the rest of the brain know that the tumor's removed? Because if your theory is true, and the rest of the brain is affected by the tumor. Yeah. If you take the tumor away, whatever is connecting the different parts of the brain, and I don't know that yet, that, that mechanism is removed as well. So after the tumor is removed, have you done the same scan? 
Yeah, we have done. We follow them for three years. Okay. And um, uh, we just saw that in general, also after a tumor is removed, if your brain still have a low metabolism, it is associated with a short time to death. Yeah. And that's the only answer I can give you. In general, nobody knows the biological mechanisms of diaschesis in humans. It's, it's like the science has come very, we're not come very long. Um, so, so, so your work has, has just proved that, that diaschesis is, is something that we need to consider, but there's no uh, mechanism discovered yet to... Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, the PhD has just shown that we have created a method. Yeah. So here's the method. Now the next step is to apply it in a larger group of patients because, you know, even though we are publishing good journals, we have no clue if diaschesis is so relevant as we think before we have uh, validated it in a bigger group. Mm-hmm. And then, and the last work of the PhD was a systematic review, where we looked at all the science that has been done on diaschesis. So it's roughly 3,000 patients that have been investigated by different scientists, but they all have used different methods. And of course, if you want to look at a phenomena uh, in a larger group, you have to use the same method. You cannot use 15 different methods. But we saw that diaschesis had been found in very many different parts of the brain, in different connections, different independent connections. And thus we created um, a synaptic map, a network diaschesis map. And also the test that we made, uh, we called the network diaschesis test. And it was not my, it was, uh, I had one of the best uh, brain scientists also as a mentor who said that, oh, we should name this something new. Mm-hmm. So from this, the end point of the thesis was that it, it was the name of, naming of a new brain disease, a network diaschesis, meaning that it's not only diaschesis in one neural connection, but it's actually diaschesis in the whole network, in the whole reticulum. And uh, to end up your first question, uh, so the work on the patent was to work on uh, combining uh, mind diaschesis method with um, the consciousness method from Copenhagen. And then I added a brilliant um, mathematical scientist and doctor, which is, you know, we've been partners for five years. And then the result was that we, we gained a patent on, on the whole brain in, in a, a, year, a year from, from, from a year ago. So, so you made this, this, this discovery of connections within the brain because you're the kind of person that goes out and you make connections yourself, you talk to people. <laughs> it, it, it sounds that way. You're just curiosity-driven. You're just yeah. talking to people, trying to find out what's going on, yeah. bumping to people in a queue in Vancouver, you know, discovering ideas and bringing everything together. I find that fascinating. And that's what science and beers is about. You drink beers, you talk to scientists. There's one more thing I want to talk about as well. It's the next thing that this group of people... Uh, that you just mentioned went on to to to, to make. I believe it's it's the COVID tracing app. The COVID the COVID tracing app. Yes. The AI behind that. Yes. And how that connects to the brain. Yeah. <laughs> Can we take a break and have a beer first, though? Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much. We'll be back in ten minutes. Will we? Okay. Thanks. So, so we just learned about Ivan's motivations, curiosity, brain disease, diathesis, and we're going to go on to talk about how this relates to COVID-19. So, I, I, I for one would like, would like to some kind of, yeah, mass testing, which would mean that I could, well, which would mean that Bruce Springsteen could go back on tour again. <laughs> you know, so I mean, how, how did how did this come about? First of all, what what, what is it we just saw? We just saw like an advertisement for an app yeah. that's based on artificial intelligence. Yes, that can mass test. Yes, for for COVID nineteen. Yeah. 
That's what you saw. That's what you saw. How did this idea come about? Well, it was because, um, like, we ended the talk. Um, my partner, doctor, and mathematician, scientist, uh, we made a, the brain patent. And then now, when the COVID 19 came, I told him, I asked him, well, we should do something. I think this 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 virus it could be we should do try to do something. And then I didn't hear anything from him and then maybe a week later or something he he returned and he said uh, I I I'm, I think I have a I think I have something that could work. And what could work was actually the reason why we met. We met at the conference in 2015 where I presented my what I've done with the brain and he presented a uh, mathematical equation he had made for chlamydia testing. <laughs> a mathematical equation for chlamydia testing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And this he had then translated into use for COVID-19 testing, but additionally he had the program in open source software. So he was not finished programming, but he contacted me and he said that, you know, I, uh, if we do this and this, we can group test hence mass test a large number of people for the same cost as um, a small number of people. And then, not very long after that, the group from Israel published a study uh, confirming his theories, saying that we have tried to group tests of COVID-19 in a laboratory, and we have seen that you can group up to 30 tests of COVID-19, so the saliva from 30 people into one pool, then you use one COVID-19 test into that pool, and if it's negative, it means that there's no virus in that test. You're talking about the standard uh, t- test that is, is PCR? Yeah, PCR, uh-huh. yeah. exactly. So it means that if you do that on 30 people or 32, you've actually saved 31 tests. And we all know that co- one co- the COVID-19 costs money. So it means that that's group testing, and that was developed during Second World War Hi. Uh, by a, a professor called Robert Dorfman in, um, in test because the syphilis epidemic, and they had just uh, produced and, and created penicillin, but it was not enough penicillin. Hence, he used group testing to figure out who to give penicillin and who not to give penicillin. So it's an old... Again, it's like diaskesis. It's an old scientific principle. So he had he had a load of soldiers and put all of their what was it blood into yeah. it. A jar tested tested the whole, all of the blood for for syphilis. Yeah, and then if and then if it was negative, it yeah. means that you don't have it. But if it's positive, then you retest the group. Then mm-hmm. you test them individually. Okay, so it means that this group testing you don't uh, you do not uh, lower the analytical accuracy. Whatsoever, you just make a more efficient system. Mm-hmm. It makes total sense. Yeah, get as many people as you can. If people want to go to a football match, they all get exactly well, tested it, at the same time, and it goes faster mm-hmm. because if you can, you know, a PCR machine. Often the standard is that you have uh, ninety six places, ninety six tests, and it shakes it for you know four hours or six hours, and then get the result. Mm-hmm. But instead of having one test in one glass, you can have three tests or five tests. So that or thirty tests or forty tests. Forty and tests in one one vial. Where okay, and then you have ninety six of them. And exactly. So you can see how exponentially you you can really start talking about, let's say, testing eighty thousand people, because it's in the science has uh, you know there has been science published. Um, showing that you can save between 30 to 80% of all COVID-19 tests if you use group taste testing strategy. But, but PCR, it, it's a polymerase chain reaction, you know, it, it amplifies a certain part of the RNA in the virus. Uh, and if, if, if I was getting tested, it would be a swab from, from the back of my throat, which would go end up in a, in a little vial like that. But if there was 32 people going into the same size of vial, the worry that I would have would be that there would 
that little scraping from the throat or the saliva would be so diluted that any one individual who did have it and they might have a very low amount of virus in their in their body, it wouldn't show up in the PCR. Yeah. So of course that's a, a danger. Hence, if you start in, um, doing group testing, they do it here in Odense actually. They are grouping three people. So every three three people are grouped in one test. So meaning that if you want to do it on thirty people, the study I referred to was just a exploratory study. Yeah. So it means that, like, this is a field of science, just like diaskesis, that we have not put much attention to. So, of course, uh, if, you, if you want to really figure out how many can we group, then you have to, you know, both test individually. And at the same time, you, you put the same test, you divide it, and you put it in groups. And then you see how accurate can we be. And then, let's say, if you test it on 10,000, that, okay, we can actually have four in a group. Then you continue to five and six. And then, of course, if you start doing this, then, of course, the industry will also start exploring what chemicals can we make so that we can actually make group testing more efficient. So, so, um, so it's not like you can just start testing 30 people in a group. Mm-hmm. There, of course, it's steps. Yeah. Um, but uh, but, but, but that, that's a... I know I know that this group testing is an idea that's coming in. Uh, I've heard about it in the news in the UK. Is it happening in Denmark? As people, well, we just said it's, they're they're measuring both both bulks of three. But then, how does the the AI come into this? How does your yeah? Well, the the thing is that uh, Sophia, uh, because the thing is that you Wait, know, Sophia if, is the name of the AI. Yeah. Yeah. If you just group test randomly, if you take all us in this group room and you said, okay, group of three, group of three, group of three. It, um, economically, it makes more sense and also time efficiency that if you have been traveling, but all of us has been here in Denmark, we test you alone, mm-hmm. right? And then because the likelihood of you having COVID-19 is a little bit higher than all the rest of us. So the AI comes into play because it says that these people have a higher likelihood of having COVID-19. Hence, when you actually perform the group testing, uh, those who have a likelihood is tested by themselves. And those who have a very low likelihood is tested in groups. So it means that you uh, higher the statistical probability to lower the number of groups you have to retest. And that in itself can save enormous amount of money and time. And the way it works is that well, you download the software Jacob to your phone, which you have uh, produced, and then you, you put into variables like fever, yes, no, cough, yes, no. Many of the same, same things that you actually do on Test Denmark's site when you go in, in there to get a, a, a test. So then when you, and these variables we, we have uh, g- gathered from scientific literature all around the world of um, characteristics of COVID-19 patients. And then when you have entered that, it takes only one minute, you push analyze. And then the machine learning algorithm, which is Sophia, she tells you, okay, you should be grouped by yourself or in a group of three or in a group of five. And this number you can then give to the test person so they can put it on your test so that the laboratory knows if you'll be tested by yourself in a group of three or five and so forth. Uh-huh. And oh, okay. So, so you're limiting the the amount to five. No, no, not no. thirty. The the AI is created to larger groups of people. Mm-hmm. The reason I say five is that uh, is that, for example, now we're testing group of three, but uh, maybe five we could do today. But higher than that, we need to do much more science in order to be sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and the other point with the AI is that. Uh, you know, uh, if you let's say if you do this uh, study in Canada, you get valuables into the machine learning algorithm, and and if it gets smarter, then it will Sophia will leave the phone, but it will not take the sensitive data with it. So when you use the algorithm, it will never take information from your phone, and that makes that you're more safe. We don't need any cloud. And it also makes Sophia smarter. Mm-hmm. 
So that's also a, um, what we find, what we think is important. Because today, everything, you know, the data we have is, is often uh, um, exploited. It, indeed, but, but it's, there's this uh, thought in, the, in the, the consumer maybe that who, who, can, who can we trust? Like there's yeah. many, many people say, we'll not take your data, but will they, is that true? <laughs> you know? um, but but how, does, how does your idea for this app compare to, say, in Denmark, Smittestop? How many yeah. people have Smittestop? Half people in the room have, have the Danish app Smittestop. How, how does Sophia compare to that? Well, um, it compares because uh, Smittestop, and again, I'm, I'm shooting from my hips. Yes. Yeah. But it's it's not a science app. It's it's a surveillance app. Mm-hmm. It does not create anything new. It just makes it's just a system to figure out where you are. But our app, it actually you know because it's a machine learning algorithm, an AI. The more data you put into it, you can also every time you use it, it marks what location you have. It means also that it 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 gets better in pooling correctly into groups. Yeah. So, yeah. so, and the reason why it's important is because you have very many different um, machines performing tests in the laboratory. You have Roche, you have Siemens, blah, 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 blah. So it means that if you want to enhance science on group testing, if you have a system that can, you know, Sophia, that can actually travel around all the places, um, it is easier to, uh, to systematically understand how many can we pull. Mm-hmm. So the difference is that, and boldly we say that, well, we, we, we really think we have created maybe the first science app that actually you can connect everyone who wants to use it. So, so does, your app, does your idea also inform people if they were in contact with somebody else who was well, who tested positive? Um, uh, not yet, mm. no. And this is but, but your, your app is, is not to let people know that they were in contact with people who were infected. Your app is to test as many people as possible, it as is fast as, possible. as fast as possible. And 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 that's why I also say our sci- our app is a science app because it tells you yes or no if you have it, and and the theory, and who you can go and party with. Yeah, and but in theory, it, it you know. It, it is a system that if you want to have a music, you know, a concert, if you used, and let's say you have 10,000, you can actually test everyone in theory. Mm-hmm. You can, because the problem with testing is that we have not enough COVID-19 tests or we don't have enough money. It costs too much. Mm-hmm. If you want to pay, pay a private company to test you at the airport, it costs between 1,000 and 2,000 kroner, yeah. right? Yeah. So imagine if that company had a group testing strategy, it will lower the cost between 30 to 90% for each, each test. So, so, so our I, yeah, the, the whole, like, like I, I traveled uh, two weeks ago and I was, I also wanted to get a test, but I'm thinking, well, can hell, uh, two, three thousand kroners <laughs> for, for a test. If the whole plane landed and the whole plane was able to like all spit in a bucket <laughs> and, then, and then see if, if, if anybody was infected. That would be a very useful tool. Yeah. A very useful tool indeed. Yeah. yeah. Or let's say, you know, you know, there's so many things to this test uh, strategy that I think doesn't make sense. Like you say, okay, you take a test, but then you actually meet other people and then you get an answer. Yeah. Well, then you actually meet many different people. Oh, Yeah. Indeed, indeed and, yeah. Or and but the thing is, you know, and I think that the challenge is that it's it is a con- economy, and it is that we don't have enough equipment. So we have to create a method that um, use the resources better, and and you have to create a method. And then this is the beauty of science, you know, good science. It tells you yes or no. You don't take a guess. It is yes or no. Mm-hmm. So instead of guessing, okay, we take a test. How many people do I meet? I use Smith Stop app. I figure out maybe this, maybe that. It's not science. Science is yes or no. Hence, um, our, our aim is to make a tool that is political independent. Because right now we are, you know, the politi- politicians are, you know, they are, have power of all our lives. And they're doing their best. But 
And the problem is that their, their tool is lockdown. Yeah. But the lockdown yeah. creates many people are losing their jobs, many people are isolated and these things. Mm-hmm. So if you have a tool where you can get people more out of lockdown that is political undependent. Yeah, and it's completely... You see what I mean? It's com- crippling the economy as well. It is crippling economy yeah. and, you know, and, and, and uh, um, the people on top, of course, they just get richer. But the people in middle and, on the, and lower, they really suffer the consequences, not only now, but in many, many years to come. So, of mm-hmm. course, this has also been our intention to create... The, I mean, we have programmed the whole AI without any money without any investors. My partner who has programmed it in open source software, uh, then we have uh, connected him to another programmer in a different country, which have created the software itself. You know, we have come so far um, because, and we work, you know, in our spare time in these things, because we really think that uh, the testing regime that we have today, um, it is not good for us. We need something better. And it is possible. It is really possible to to create something where we don't have to suffer for one or two years. Mm-hmm. Because the longer we suffer, the more exponential is the what happens after, sort of. How do you have any spare time? What? <laughs> you sound like a very busy man. You know, so 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 you're you're studying medicine, then you're you're doing your PhD, and then. You, you, you were part of a team that, that created a created a, a COVID app. Yeah, you know that that, that sounds like you, your your days are pretty pretty busy. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah. It's annoying. <laughs> it really is annoying. Yeah, yeah. So also also Sophia and Jakob is the name of your kids as well. Yeah, that's the name of my daughter and my son. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so so a family man as well. So 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 yeah. so so very busy. But. This is for the, 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 the good of humanity, is to get the economy back together, is to get mass people tested. And, and from, from talking to you, this is completely new territory to you. Yeah, for, for me. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you've not done anything like this before. You haven't invented a, an app or, no, no, no. or an AI no. before. Um, so I, I guess you're learning as you're going, but you've came so far, you've developed the app, you've given proof of concept. How, how does one go about getting getting this app out into the world? Yeah, well, you tell me. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're still you tell me. <laughs> figure it out. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's my partner who has created the algorithm, who's programmed it. Then, of course, it's another person who has created the software, and and then we're all working together on um, on trying to expand this, and um, that is challenging. It's really challenging. You know, you have to have a proof of concept mm-hmm. uh, or you have to have investors. But, you know, um, it's, a, it's a very uh, unholistic world we live in today. So, and our solution is very holistic. So we also work towards, you know, we made the app, but then working with some uh, laboratories, we understood that, okay, it actually does not exist a robot to perform the group testing. They're, they're, it exists some, but they're not very efficient and they cost many millions. So we started looking at a robot and we realized that, okay, it will only cost like 40,000, 50,000 to create one. Maybe we actually could create it like an IKEA robot, blah, blah, blah. Well, why can't you use a, a standard PCR? You, you, we test. Can. Of course you robot. can. But the thing is, I mean, there's many things to it, but I mean, one of the reasons why... The, everything is so challenging right now is that you have the healthcare, the hospitals, you have the scientists, you have the commercial companies, you have the politicians, but they all have different interests. So the robots that are in the laboratory, mm-hmm. maybe they cost a lot of money, but the scientists have no other option than to buy what is offered from this American company, let's say. But in reality they maybe need a much smaller robot mm-hmm. that works faster and is cheaper, right? So, so we, when we started looking into this, we also work with trying to see, is it possible to... We know it's possible. We've been to meetings. It's extremely easy to make this robot. It's extremely easy. Mm-hmm. And most likely, we can actually make a robot. All the parts exist where you actually can, in theory, just order it by email. And the reason why this is important to us is because... 
we're creating a solution that we want them to be possible to use in refugee camps and in India and countries where we don't have all this money that we have in the West. So, so how to how to come from that we have this product we have we have created an AI to actually. Uh, get it out there. We have worked very much with it, but that's the challenge right now. Um, and and of course, you know, our uh, vision with the company, with Synaptic, which was founded in 2018, is that the the brain AI that we now have a patent on, and then the COVID-19 AI, it can actually be used in many different diseases as well. We want to combine these two, because then if you combine it, it's a way of reporting symptoms and these things in a new way. Hence, of course, we would like to get investors in, but the problem is that, you know, we, we, we want science to be the main force, the, what, what leads this project. Mm-hmm. Because we know that, you know, of course it's good to make money, but it's better to make good science if you really want to help someone. So these these things are are complex. It's challenging. Um, um, yeah. But so so you're looking looking for net investors, and, and not being a, a, a politician myself, you know, this is a money saving thing for a state. You know, if they can mass test, you know, so 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 spending a, a few thousand kroners for for a PCR machine doesn't seem like a lot in the greater scheme of things. Whenever you take out the the price of paying the individual scientists for doing the individual mm-hmm. tests for individual people, you know, so it, it sounds like something that that a, a government might be interested in, not sure. not to put money in, but to say, okay, we can save this amount of money, X amount of money, if we if we take this on board. Have you tr- have you tried to a- approach the government from a not giving us money, but a them saving money perspective? Do you want an honest answer or the diplomatic oh. answer? A total lie. Give me a total lie. <laughs> a total lie. <laughs> of course, the truth. Yeah, yeah they're the so truth. Give me the truth. Yeah, they're so interested, <laughs> yeah. and like, you know, they're very uh, welcome, and you know yeah. everything. So you have you you have you've tried this approach to it? Yeah. Well, of course, I'm from Norway, but I you know I live in Denmark. We have contact so many of the Norwegian authorities, but also Danish authorities, and it's it's uh, so far it has been impossible to to come through. Just impossible, you know. We send them the pitch, blah mm. blah blah, but you know, it's it's all uh, the, in the name. It's all who you are. Everything is network today. Um, well, well, that, that that's how you came here in the first place. That's how yeah, you, that's that's, that's, that's yeah. how you got to the to the to the to the place where you're able to create. Yeah, because you talk to people because you have a network because you're not you're not shy to talk to people. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So so you you more than many people know how important network is, uh, and. I, I guess it, like, whenever whenever you're trying to influence policymakers, it's it's probably a, a complicated process. Yeah, you know, and and given the the structure of the society, society that we live in, no no one person is in charge. There's a certain way of doing things. It has to go through certain procedures. It has to go up the ladder, so to speak. Hmm. You know, so that mustn't be easy to do without that name. Well, it's it's much more complex than the science. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> you can show the slide where you can sh- you can see how uh, you know some of the es- estimation of what you can save. The, the, this is the, the 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 savings here. Is it? That's daily. Over here. So. Is this a slide that you're looking for? Yeah. And this yeah. is estimation of uh, right now we're testing each person individually. But then, if you compare those costs every day, of uh, that you can save between thirty to eighty percent, this is actually the number you can save each day. And the reason why this is important each day, yeah. So, uh, so uh, how much is there? is Denmark spending on COVID testing at the moment? Uh, a lot. <laughs> okay. Wow. So all this money for testing is taken from a budget. But of course, very well, if, if I'm flying into an airport and I'm paying, I'm paying two or three thousand kroners for my test, you know, and if the Danish government are, are testing like hundreds of thousands of people, yeah, that that's that's that could add up. Yeah, it's insane <laughs> a lot of money. Uh-huh. And there, I think you know, in, if you are to defend the politicians, well, their challenge is that they are not scientists. They, I mean, they they don't know the details of the testing regime. 
meaning that they have to take decisions based on reports they made, they read from others. So, you know, this is, um, this is also, I think, why some decisions are maybe off the chart sometime. Because, you know, we, we should have, scientists should be more, I think, um, involved in the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. And, for example, a solution like this, I'm not saying that it will work. I'm just saying we should try it. And then, and then, please show me that it doesn't work. Well, well, well quite recently in Denmark, there was the mink crisis with the COVID, yeah. the cluster five COVID mutation, and uh, only this past couple of days, there's been some science to come out to say that actually, the vaccine that's targeting the the, the proteins on the surface of the vaccine, even in the mutation, the vaccine will still work. But they still took the decision. Yeah. A week or two ago, to, to kill every every single mink in Denmark, so it it, it is possible to like make these very spontaneous decisions mm. in, in government to even. And in that respect, you know, in that respect, you know, if you have a group testing regime, mm. of course, I'm biased because this yeah. is my our baby. But you know, if you have a group testing regime, it's it's a tool where you can test very many people or animals very quickly. So instead of taking decisions out of a gut feeling of what you think is right, mm-hmm. you take a decision out of a gut feeling of what you know is right. Mm-hmm. And and um, so this is you know this is also you know one of the like the core values of our company. It is that you know we really want a science to prosper because instead of going from systems where we think yeah. we act right. We we follow a system where where we know we're following the right. Yeah. You prob- probably need some kind of like test space, you know. For example, in Germany, a couple months or maybe a month ago, they set up this uh, this test where they invited a bunch of people into a, a concert at a large music venue, and they used those people as test subjects to see how COVID spread. You know, you probably need to start small and take a certain area or maybe an island and see if you can approach the mayor or, or the local council there to see if you can introduce this app to see if it works there and then, and then scale it up. Yeah. For, for example, approaching maybe the mayor of Owens and saying, hey, let's test everybody that wants to go to an OB football match. Yeah. And then, and then that, it starts there and then it, it, get, it gains, some, gains some traction. We are, we are working with um, uh, two Danish hospitals mm-hmm. in order to, to try it out. Okay. And, um, and hopefully we can, you know, try it out at, at, at least one of these hospitals uh, very soon. So it is, uh, we are crossing our fingers that we can, can do that. Yeah. And so, of course, because if you can do that, if you can show that it works one place, then you can implement it other places. Yeah. As long as I'm able to go to Bruce Springsteen concerts again in uh, in a year or so, because he just came out with a new album there. Um, let me see. Yeah, that, that's that's your team there behind Synaptic. Yeah. So so you, you guys you, you made a company, and you, what you're doing is you're inventing a, a way to, to to test the connectivity of the brain, and. Covid. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, and, and I think in essence, what we do is that we we are we just say we want to use the best science, the most logical science, and then we want to focus on that with the new technology in hand. So that's this, you know both with the brain and the covid. I mean, we're using scientific principles that is either a hundred years or fifty years old, and we just we have programmed either algorithm in open source software or in the neuro software. Um, it, it has been extremely cheap to make it. And of course, um, we do it because we think it's fun. Um, and we, we want to try it in, in larger materials. So that's like, and then I think other part is that we live in different countries. My, my partner, who you see there, um, you have you know his name. You've seen this image, but he would prefer to be uh, anonymous. Yeah. And, uh, he's a really nice guy, even though he has chosen that image. Um, but he lives in a different part of the world, 
we have collaborated on uh, WhatsApp digital platforms for five years. Uh, Thomas, that is here, he lives in Slovakia. Mm -hmm. um, he created the, the Jakob software. Uh, we all collaborated on digital platforms. It's extremely efficient. Um, and then um, Vegar, that is here, he has a, he's a co-founder of a, of a medical app that has been very prosperous in, in Norway and knows much about commercialization and these things. And so, you know, we don't even live in, in the same countries. Uh, so that's also part of the philosophy that, uh, you know, we have all, the, you know, it's like we have this brain today, <laughs> which is the internet. Yeah. Yeah. But still, I think there's so much chaos. And I think we need some sort of um, synaptic energy. Yeah. And diaschesis or uh, <laughs> an entry point where we think differently. Or maybe, you know, we, we think in a millennial way and, and maybe not in the way the generation above us thought. I mean, that's the meaning of generations. We are to evolve and, mm -hmm. and create new systems. But it also means that we have to be bold and we have to follow what we think is right, even though very many other things wrong. Um, so this is also where we're, we're coming from, that we, we really want to, f to follow what we really think is right for our generation, but also for those who comes after us. And that maybe means to, to break some of the older system that is governing the way we talk, think today. I think you, you, you painted a picture quite well with the, the two Nobel Prize winners 100 years ago that they had two different ideas of how their brain works and they hated each other. They couldn't even be in the same room. Whereas today, you meet somebody with a different idea and you're like, okay, let's talk, let's get a beer, let, let's see what we can do, let's brainstorm, let's, let's build up on our idea. And that's, that's how you got talking to your, your colleague in Copenhagen, for example, whenever you met in mm. Vancouver. So I think your, your whole talk today, and it seems to be your whole philosophy, is about connectivity. Yeah. You know, so you, you meet people, you talk to people, you, you inspire yourself, you get ideas about the connectivity of the brain, about the connectivity of, of other people thinking about the brain, and then the connectivity about, about the app, how we can come together through the app and test for COVID so we can eventually make it to Bruce Springsteen concerts again. <laughs> so uh, so I, I think that was a, a very in inspiring talk. And I think one thing that lubricates connectivity is, of course, beers. So, so cheers. Cheers. Thanks very much for coming out today. Ivan, are you going to hang around for a couple more of these? Yeah, I like connectivity. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming, guys.